Hebrews chapter 4, I'm going to take you to the end of the chapter, verses 14 and 15 and 16. It is a great passage. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin right there in verse 14. <clears throat> Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, that you help us in this room right now, right this moment, are sons and daughters of yours in need. We've come here on the Lord's day asking to have those needs met. So please, as a loving father, hear the prayers of your children, the, the yearning of your children, and help us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. By God's grace, it looks like we might have made it through the worst of a two-year struggle with the pandemic. And I am so incredibly thankful for uh, the church I serve, thankful for you, thankful for my family. I'm thankful for God's good provision through all of it. Even as we've just continued to go through books of the Bible, we find ourselves right here in this beautiful book of Hebrews. And here in the middle of this uh, beautiful book, we've landed in a passage that is unlike any other in the entire book. It is the most theologically rich and the shortest amount of verses maybe in all of Hebrews. So here's what I want to do today. I want to take this passage, and this is, this is really what we always do, take the passage and let's see if we can have God's Word minister to our hearts. I want to minister to your heart with this, with this word and focus our minds on the grace of God found in Jesus. Listen, no matter what you've been through, no matter who you might have, no matter who you might have lost this year, no matter uh, the ways that you possibly have been wronged, our good God has brought you through it. And, and here you are this morning as a real product and a picture of God's provision and grace. Kindness of God. I was standing at the, standing at the gas pump on Friday, putting gas in my car, and um, grumbling to myself how high gas prices are. Thinking to myself, grumbling about how, uh, how high the prices are, and uh, I mean... They're not so high that I would buy a hybrid, but they're high. They're high. And I was grumbling about that to myself, and I, I heard somebody on the other side of the pump. There's a man started quoting Romans chapter 8. And he starts walking toward me, quoting it. It scared me a little bit. I thought, what, do I need to bow up on this guy? I mean, he's quoting the Bible at me. 
he's coming at me, quoting Romans chapter 8, and he said, hey, preacher, uh, me and my girlfriend have been memorizing Romans 8. You mentioned it in church, and we decided to try and memorize it together. I said, well, brother, if that woman will memorize the Bible with you, you need to marry her. He said, hey, would you say that? Can I record you saying that? I said, yes, sir. Turn on your phone. We'll, uh. And I thought to myself, that was a kindness. If you don't ever want to encourage a preacher, just quote the Bible to it. It was very encouraging. A kindness of the Lord. God's provision and God's grace is all around us. Now, I'm wondering. I'm wondering how often you actually see it and thank him for it. I mean, look, we, we all have been through the refiner's fire. The, the refiner's fire, it, it burns, but it also purifies. The refiner's fire makes it so that you might be calmer and closer. That you might be more dependent. God has done what he's done so that, so that you might be more dependent on your heavenly father. And today, as we continue our regular exposition of the study of Hebrews, I just want to, I want to use this passage as an encouragement towards hope and joy and, and, and challenge you to joyfully take up the mantle of what it actually means to be a Christian. What it means for you to live every day of your life as an adopted son or daughter of God by the blood of Jesus at the cross. Look, I personally, I, I want to grow in grace. I, I want to live in joy. I want to sin less. I want to trust more. I, uh, I want to quit worrying about the about the future and what's going to happen in the future. I want you to take, I want us to take confidence to, to gain strength. Strength in the love of God and the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I don't want, help, I don't want self-help books or, or trite sayings or shallow sort of lightweight devotions. We don't want that. Look, I, I want you to I want you to know God like you haven't before. And, and, I, and I want to experience the same. And so for the next few moments, let's just stand under this passage. I want to dive into this challenge right here in Hebrews 4, verses 14 and 15 and 16. A challenge that was written to Christians just like us that were living in perilous times just like ours. And when you read it, what you can find is that there actually are, there are two challenges here. One has to do with doctrine, there's 14 and 15, and the other has to do with devotion, verse 16. And when you and I take hold with both hands, God will use the events of your life to grow us in grace. So if we're going to say it like this, this is how I would uh, encapsulate the sermon. By grace, by grace, God will strengthen you for what's next. I don't know what's next, but by His grace, He will strengthen you for what's next. Let's take the commands and split them, split them up like the preacher has 
and go right to the first one in verses 14 and 15. Here's the first thing I want you to see, and that is we need, we need to be strong doctrinally. We need to be strong doctrinally. It's not enough for you to say that you're a Christian. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it, especially when it comes to the Lord Jesus. I mean, you can see it right there. If you, if you have your Bible still open, you, you'll need it. You can see it right there, right where I get that in verse 14 and 15. Let's read it. Verse 14 and 15. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. I mean, this is all about Jesus. This is all about Jesus and how you and I understand Him. One of the fundamental flaws in the last 40 years of the evangelical church, and I, when I say evangelical, just the broad tent of, tent of those that believe the gospel, one of the fundamental flaws in the church over the last 40 years or so has been an overemphasis on activity and an underemphasis on doctrine. So that we end up with a whole lot of busy people that are not really clear on what they believe. Now, the people getting this letter, remember we get, kind of feel it in context. The people getting this letter for the very first time were right in the, they were right in the thick of it. And instead, the, the preacher's not giving them a, he doesn't give them a pep talk. You know what the preacher does? In verse 14 and 15, he plunges them into the depths of who Christ is and what he has done for us. And in the middle of this theology lesson, he gives this lesson in verse 14. Right in the middle of it, at the end of verse 14, there's the command. Do you see it? The command. At the end of verse 14, hold fast the confession of faith. Hold fast. Take both hands and, and get a hold of the soul-satisfying truths about Jesus. In fact, let me, just, um, let me just point out a few of them. I mean, I'll just, let's just go through the sequence. We'll run through the Bible. You'll see it for yourself. Notice that he is our high priest. You understand Jesus, he's our high priest. From the very beginning, from Genesis to Exodus, you start reading. If you're in a Bible plan, you're already through or at least into Exodus, we find out that God is holy and we are sinners separated from God. And because God is holy and we are sinners, we need a mediator. We, we need someone to go between. Isn't that what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5? There is one God and one mediator between God and people that is the man, Christ Jesus. He is our high priest. You see, as our high priest, though, he didn't just make a sacrifice for us. He became the sacrifice. He, he is the sacrifice. In fact, he would go to the cross, this is the heart of Christianity, as the sacrifice, as a substitute. And on the cross, take the judgment of God. And he did that in our behalf. And, and doing so frees us up to live with, with joy and hope and forgiveness. He is the high priest. 
But it, the preacher felt like that wasn't, that wasn't enough. You didn't, like you're not getting the punch of it. So he circles back here in verse 14 and he tells us that he is our great, he had something to it. He is our great high priest. That word great high priest, not just the high priest, but the great high priest, his, his superiority, his singularity. That he is not just a priest, he is the great high priest. If you're reading this in Greek, you'll see it, as the, it would say mega high priest. I mean, you search, you know the Bible, search the whole Bible from cover to cover. You'll never find another person, prophet, priest, or teacher that can come anywhere close to Jesus. Every high priest in the Bible, every animal sacrifice in the Bible, every built altar in the Bible, nothing more than a dim foreshadowing of Jesus, the great high priest. And just with, those, just with that little title right there in verse 14, as a Christian, why would you not? Why would you not pledge your life to him? Why would you not love him more? And, and as if that's not enough, the preacher goes on in verse 14. He tells us in verse 14 that he is our high priest. He's our great high priest. He is the one who has passed through the heavens. What does that tell us about Jesus, that he passed through the heavens? Well, a couple of things. If he passed through the heavens, it presupposes that he was resurrected from the dead. To get to the resurrection, you have to go all the way back to the cross. There at the cross, he dies in the place of sinners, buried and dead. And him passing through the heavens presupposes that there was a resurrection. That Jesus dying on the cross and his death on the cross in the place of sinners worked. Look, we have church on Sunday and not Saturday because what Jesus did for us on the cross worked. God raised him from the dead the third day on the Lord's Day, Sunday. That's why we celebrate the new covenant and come together on a Sunday. And him passing through the heavens reminds us that at his death, listen, when Jesus died on the cross, be careful how you talk about that. He didn't go as a martyr. He didn't go as a victim. He, he didn't even go as a hero. I mean, I'm all right with that language, but, but press, press it further. Jesus went to the cross as a substitute in the place of sinners, a, a once and for all finished sacrifice that makes every one of us who are in Christ free from sin and victorious over death. He ascended. The Bible says he passed through the heavens. It means that uh, it presupposes the resurrection worked. Let me tell you something else. When you read that little phrase, he passed through the heavens, it reminds us that he actually appeared to the apostles. You know the gospel stories. You've you read the gospels? Do you remember when, um, when he was raised from the dead? Do you remember he, 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 quenched, the, he quenched the doubts of Thomas? He met with Peter and he removed the shame from Peter's denials. He walked on the Emmaus Road with those disciples and he calmed the fears of those on the Emmaus Road. Go to the end of Matthew where we get our great commission, why we are a mission-sending uh, church. Why do we believe in missions? Because Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. And he said that as the ascending Lord. Uh, the, 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 the fact that he passed through, 
fact that he passed through the heavens reminds us that he indeed is the ascended Lord. That he was not only raised from the dead, that he is ascended into the very presence of a holy God and he did so as a person, as a man for men and women. Now look, I don't like, I don't like to talk when people say they're when they, when they say they're praying and, and they're going to talk to the man upstairs, I think that's trite. I think, it's, um, I think it may even be borderlining on disrespectful. But the thing is, when, when people say you're talking to the man upstairs, they typically are being trite or not thinking, but they don't know that they are also being doctrinally correct, truthful, because... There is a man in heaven who is interceding with the Father right now so that you can hold on because he is holding on to you. He has passed through the heavens. The preacher says that may not be enough. Let me um, see if I can dial it in. Verse 14, you'll see that he finally brings up the name Jesus. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus. This is the first time in the book of Hebrews that the name Jesus has shown up. Jesus, the name that literally means Yahweh saves. It is the name assigned. Go and read Matthew chapter 1 when uh, Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant. It's a scandal. Joseph is a good guy. He is not going to do anything to harm Mary. He's going to put her away quietly. And an angel of the Lord comes to Joseph and says to Joseph, Look, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. She's going to give birth to a child. And you name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The name here is, is to remind us of the full and complete humanity of the Lord Jesus. That He's fully man on behalf of men and women. The first Adam fell in the garden to temptation. The second Adam came as a man because only a real person could stand in the place of real people. Fully man. But that's not all the preacher says there. You also notice that he claims that Jesus is fully God. Notice beside Jesus, look at verse 14, look at it with me. Jesus, the Son of God. The very essence, the nature of God. When you understand Jesus, that he had a human nature, yet without sin, and a divine nature, two natures, fully divine. We understand him as the second person of the Trinity. The creed helps us. Uh, the creed helped those, those of you that come from another denomination, you know the creed. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He is the only one who has the power to save, so that when, when we approach uh, God in prayer, and you even hear the Trinitarian nature of praying, when we approach God in prayer, we pray to God the Father through God the Son by the power of God the Spirit. When we talk about how we are saved, how is the Trinity involved in our salvation? Our salvation is 
planned by God the Father. It is accomplished by God the Son. It is applied by God the Spirit. He is Jesus, the Son of God. But, but you, you just keep going now. All this doctrine in verse 14 and down in verse 15. In verse 15, now watch, the, watch how the description continues in verse 15. Verse 15, we find out that our God through Jesus is compassionate. It's a good thing to remember as a Christian, compassionate. Notice what he, what he does in verse 15. Notice how he takes a positive but puts it negatively in verse 15. Verse 15, for we, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. That's a positive said negatively. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Do you see his compassion? Verse 15, there's a, there's a word I want you to drill into that he sympathizes with us. Sympathizes with our weaknesses. That, that word um, sympathize, it's, it's, the Greek word sounds a lot like it. Sympatheo, it is to, to suffer along with. Not just to feel sorry for. There's a difference. We oftentimes have sympathy. I mean, we feel, but, but what Jesus does is act. He actually joins in the pain. The Bible says that our God is close to the broken hearted, to suffer with our weaknesses, to, to suffer with our ailments. You, if you're aging, you, you, you feel that. To, you battle with, with depression. Let's be careful in the Christian world what we do with depression. So many of our, so many of our Christian heroes suffer with depression. Remember, it's, it's something God uses, and, but, it, but it's so Terrible. And, and, and the text here, if you struggle with depression, go here. Go right here. That he, he, he suffers with us. With anxiety, with you. Lack of trust, he's with you. Failing something physical, failing health, some sort of an addiction, some sort of struggle. You, you can watch and read about the Old West and watch Western movies and riding a horse when it goes lame. What do you do with a lame horse? You shoot it. Oftentimes in the Christian world, what we end up doing instead of taking care of our wounded, we shoot them. Do you know that Jesus does not shoot his wounded? He, he, he heals his wounded patiently, long-sufferingly, walking, carrying, loving waiting, sanctifying you. He, th this text says he's compassionate. Not only compassionate, you keep reading it, you, you find out in verse 15 that he is, our God is, is hope giving. Hope giving. What a strange verse. When you study verse 15, what an unusual way to describe Jesus. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Slow down but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So we, when we talk about Jesus dying on the cross in our place, and that's certainly true. It's, it's wonderfully, majestically true. But don't forget, he also, as our substitute, he lived in our place. 
Remember the active obedience of Jesus, the, the actual resisting of Jesus. Jesus tempted in at least three ways. Uh, according to this passage, he was tempted comprehensively. He was tempted empathetically. He was tempted victoriously. He was tempted comprehensively. The Bible says that he was tempted in every respect. Every one of them. Nothing left out. He was tempted empathetically. The Bible says that he was tempted in every respect as we are. When you go and read the temptations of Christ and you read how he resisted, he's doing that in our place because we don't resist. He was tempted victoriously. The text says that he was tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin. Here is the, the Savior not just dying on the cross in our place, but his active obedience that he is there. When you are tempted, providing strength, as you're holding on, fighting it off, giving you endurance, as He is infusing in you the ability to resist. Look, He's not just when you're fighting. He's there when you fall to temptation. Let's not forget now that He's there when you fall to temptation. And what does He do? He covers you with His earned righteousness. Why? Because he is the spotless, sinless, perfect Lamb of God who takes our sin to the cross. Now look, I, I've just spent about 10, 15, I don't know how long, 20 minutes. We've not scratched the surface of those two verses. I, I just want you to see that when you start thinking about Jesus, you're reminded that by by the grace of God, by grace, God is going to strengthen you for what's next. We need to be doctrinally strong, but we also need to be devotionally strong. We want to take this doctrine that's so rich and good and, and is meaty and, and make sure that it leads us to this devotion, to this worship and, and, and love of God. And I'll show you that in my next point. Point number two, we need to be devotionally strong. Devotionally. Verse 16 really is, it's a devotional command. Do you see the command of verse 16? You found it at the end of verse 14, let us. And then verse 16, the command is, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy, find grace to help in time of need. The command is, let us draw near. That little phrase, draw near. It is the idea and understanding of, it's always used to talk about a person worshiping or praying to God. It speaks of our devotional life. It speaks to what we're doing on Sundays. It speaks to our worship. Lots to see here. Let's fly over it quickly. The Bible says that we are to draw near, to approach, to come and present yourself. That is done in such a way that you're doing it over and over. It is a present tense verb. You draw near, then draw near again. I would call this uh, praying and worshiping. And look at the scriptures. Draw near. Draw near with confidence. Yours might say with boldness. Boldness, I think, is a better description because it, it gives us this, this, this freedom. The idea is this freedom to, to come to God with your whole self, your whole heart, 
and all your problems. It's a freedom of speech. It's not disrespect. It's just the freedom to say. It's an entreaty to pour out your soul to God and trust that you're covered in the righteousness of Christ to worship freely and to pray freely and openly and to do so without worrying. Draw near with confidence. You also can worship with joy. Look what the text says in verse 16. Draw near to the throne of grace. The throne is royal. We stand in awe, but it gives us an adjective here. The throne of grace. Charles Spurgeon, when he looked at this passage, uh, said it best. And, and if he says it, he almost always says it best. Charles Spurgeon said that uh, when, when God gives the law... He sits on a throne of legislation. When God administers the law, He sits on the throne of government. When God tries His subject, He sits on a throne of judgment. But when His people pray and worship, He sits on a throne of grace. You can pray with joy because your Father who purchased you is a God of grace. We worship with hope. The Bible says in verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy, find grace to help. Mercy. What great hope there is in the word mercy. Mercy uh, is the word kindness. It's the, it's the understanding of forgiveness. Mercy is, it's good to understand. Mercy means you don't get the punishment you deserve. Mercy is a loving restoration. It's what God does for us in Jesus. We can worship and pray with hope. You can worship with expectation. You, you can worship and pray with the expectation that God is going to hear those prayers. Look what the text says. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy, talk about that, and find grace to help in time of need. He will answer he will heal. You can pray with endurance because the text says you will find grace to help in time of need. Brothers and sisters, God has brought so many of you through so much. And you're here. By God's grace, you've been through dangers and snares and toils. And if He's done that, he will do that again. He will help you because you are His. Now, there, there's some of you, if you're maybe visiting or you're hearing this for the first time and it's just starting to resonate, that you may in fact not be a Christian. You're still carrying guilt or shame or you're still wondering. And yet today you've... you've You've heard people sing and pray. You've heard the gospel preached. You maybe for the first time understand that, that God is holy, that you are a sinner separated from God. And the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, lived perfectly, died as a substitute in the place of sinners. God has raised him from the dead. He passed through the heavens. He ascended into heaven. And now the way that becomes yours is you turn from sin and believe. 
Do, do you want to believe that? To put your faith in what Jesus has done for sinners. Look, it's grace. By grace, brothers and sisters that are Christians, God will strengthen you for what's next. We need to be strong doctrinally. We need to be strong devotionally. In a few moments, we're going to sing. And when we do, you may want to come and pray because today is the Lord's Supper. A tangible reminder of doctrine and devotion. Jesus dying for sinners. It's tangible, but also the devotion. We remember Him. Just a moment. Kyler will lead us through that. But if you, you this morning want to talk to a pastor about what it means to give your life to Jesus Christ, or if you want someone to pray with you before we take the Lord's Supper, when we sing this last worship song, we'll invite you to come forward. Would you join me as we pray now? Father, thank you for your word that is good. Thank you for grace that saves. Thank you for bringing us through. So many men and women here could give testimony to your grace. Thank you for the symbol of baptism that we've seen today of new life in Christ. We pray you continue to add to the number of those being baptized. And Lord, as, as your church takes the Lord's Supper in just a few moments, we pray that it would mean something. That we might remember how good you've been to us in Jesus. We thank you for, this, for all of this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand please? We sing together.